0: On a winter's day in Ndongo Matamba, the royal palace doors are opened. Light flooding onto a somber procession. Four men carry a small funerary bier on their shoulders, lying on which was the body of an old woman. Leading the way with the brotherhood of the rosary, carrying a Christian cross before them and lighted candles. Behind them was a military band and around thousands of attendants and allies. To anyone watching, this would have appeared more like the funeral of a European monarch than one from Africa. Gone were the fine cloths and regalia of Queen Nzinga's former life. She now wore the simple habit of a Catholic monk. The only sign of her status was the crown on her head. But then her body was covered with piles of colourful traditional cloths, a sign that this wasn't, in fact, happening in Lisbon or London, but in Ndongo Matamba. When the party reached the central square the queen's body was placed on an elevated portico with a single young page sat at one end holding her head up so that everyone could see their former leader clutching the queen's head in his hands the page looked up to see over 20000 mourners marching somberly towards him paying their last respects to their former leader once they had all passed by a group of soldiers surrounded her body and formed an honour guard as the pallbearers picked the body up to take her for formal Christian burial. As they walked by, the soldiers began to sing and dance in traditional fashion, while the people watching fell to the ground, spat in the dust, and rubbed their faces with a mix of dirt and saliva. This was one final act of subordination to one of their greatest ever rulers, the woman that had saved them from colonial oppression. Looking over all of this was a Capuchin monk, Father Antonio Cavazzi. This was a burial the like of which the world had never seen a fusion of Christian and Mabundu rites with a particular twist that was uniquely in Jinga. She had created a brand new world, a new kingdom, a new culture, and this was its final. Culmination. And welcome to the other half. Episode 3.14, N'Jinga and Golan Gloriana. Last time, we saw N'Jinga become Queen of Ndongo as well as Matamba, but be forced from power by the Portuguese and their hapless puppet, King Harry, who they had named in her stead. She went on the run and led a decades-long war against the Portuguese. Forging new alliances with the ferocious Imbangala and the Dutch Republic, and Jinga led a campaign that nearly drove the Portuguese out of Angola. However, the Dutch betrayed her, abandoning Luanda after a military defeat, leading her to face the full might of Portugal alone. Today, we will see her finally achieve ultimate victory, and finally rule the nation whose throne she had assumed so many years before. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep this show going. If you too would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash The Other Half Podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. Just search for The Other Half Podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The Dutch left Angola in 1648, leaving Injinga, now in her mid-60s, in something of a pickle. She had two principal goals, secure the throne and obtain her sister's freedom. For decades, though she had pursued diplomatic options and economic brocades, the principal thing she had used was military force in order to achieve those objectives particularly after initiation into the Ambangala and the arrival of the Dutch. Now, however, trying to drive the Portuguese out of Angola was no longer a realistic goal. She just didn't have the manpower, nor, frankly, the years in her life to do it. She needed a new approach. Well, actually, it wasn't so much a new one as a consolidation of things that she had tried to do before, but never together. Step one, entrench her control over Matamba and eastern Ndongo. These were a primary source of slaves, which was, as I've said before, the only reason the Portuguese were there at all. If she controlled the slave supply, then the Portuguese would have to deal with her, and that would give her power and influence. Western Ndongo was lost. She couldn't get that, but she could hold on to the eastern half of the country. Step two was to make nice with the Capuchins. We haven't talked about them before, but they've been around for some time, and were, and still are in fact, a strict Franciscan order of Catholic missionaries, and they would be vital intermediaries between Njinga and the Portuguese. And step three was to Christianize her people. Getting into bed with the Imbangala had won her the throne of Matamba and many military victories, but their brutal ways and beliefs meant that Portugal and even many Mbundu would not consider a lasting peace with her in charge. But a Christian Njinga, dedicated to spreading the faith, they could work with that. Now, this three-pronged strategy did not mean that she abandoned warfare. Far from it. It was just that success in the battlefield was now a means to an end and not an end itself. And equally it didn't mean that her forces were any less ferocious. A Portuguese report from 1650 noted an average of 10 invasions per year from Njinga, with the regions she conquered either having their leaders killed or become their vassals. In one battle, 40,000 of her men destroyed a 10,000-man Portuguese army in a surprise dawn attack. I say man, but we know that her army was made up of both men and women, with one observer writing that each woman in her army had four or five officers in their service and for their pleasure. She was renowned for being an excellent military strategist, leader, and warrior. But she was also getting on a bit. So by the late 1650s, she decided it was time to leave the actual fighting to younger men and women. Instead, she focused on the diplomatic and strategic side. And in those areas, her powers had only increased with age. One of the things she focused on in this time was solving, re-rigging succession disputes and elections in her favour, ensuring that new sobers were inclined to support her and not the Portuguese puppet government. This was key to step one of her strategy. So let's move on to step two. Her army had captured many missionaries throughout their campaigning. And while I'm sure that her Imbangala allies envisaged all sorts of painful executions for them, Njinga prevented this, as she saw them as a back-channel for formal negotiations with the Portuguese and the Catholic Church. One of the most significant of these missionaries was Father Zilotes, who, coincidentally, had been the man that baptised her into the Catholic faith a quarter-century beforehand. He had been pretty much roughed up by his captors, but she tended to his wounds and recruited him to one of her secretaries and advisors in dealing with the Catholic Church. She worked hard on these captured priests to persuade them that she was not the brutal cannibal that Portuguese propaganda had painted her as, and gave them a letter to forward onto the Pope, in which she promised to return to the Catholic faith and invite more missionaries in to convert her people. This would not be a quick process, and Jinga had quite the reputation for brutality, some deserved, some not so much. But as the missionaries got to know her and the way that she was reforming her court and army, they began to write back to Europe that she was a woman with whom they could do business. Most notably, they wrote to the Vatican recommending that they set up a new Christian prefecture in Ndongo. And that while Njinga's people were wont to engage in, quote, sinful behavior and, quote, eat human flesh, they were willing to change or at least she was. This was a huge diplomatic coup for Njinga, cemented in 1655 when the Pope effectively recognised her as Queen in an official decree. This was of course a big advance on the road to achieving step three of her plan to persuade the Portuguese that she was a Christian Queen with whom they could live with on their borders. So things were going well, enabling Njinga to press ahead with trying to obtain the release of her sister, Cambu. she had already been working on the new Portuguese governor, whose name I won't trouble you with, as there are so many goddamn Portuguese governors with long names, sending him slaves and gifts, and restating her desire for peace, so long as they recognised her as queen, return some of the lands taken from her, and release her sister. The governor was happy to go along with the first of these, but dragged his feet on the latter two this led to an impasse until the appointment of a new governor in 1654 whose name i will give you luis martins de souza chichorio he was related to governor de souza the man who had stood as her godfather at her baptism and njinga seized on this connection as a possible pathway to doing a deal he was extremely keen on the idea of peace and so arranged a summit along the lines of the field of the cloth of gold, an elaborate piece of diplomatic, political and literal theatre, where each side ruffled their proverbial peacock feathers and demonstrated how powerful they were through military processions and displays of wealth. And Jinga wouldn't be there herself, instead she'll be represented by her sister Kambu, who now was going by the more westernized name Barbara, but I will be sticking with Kambu for ease. This was an awe-inspiring, ostentatious spectacle. But the real business would take place at the negotiating table. And Jinga's main goal here was the release of her sister. And while she did not achieve it at that meeting, the wheels were set in motion. Once again, she, a black African female ruler, had demonstrated to Western colonisers that she was a serious entity that they ignored at their peril but also one with whom they could deal. One should not underestimate the scale of that achievement. Over the next few years, she would send many emissaries to Luanda, bearing gifts to keep channels open, while also keeping up the pressure on the military front, as she was well aware that if the tide turned in the war, the Portuguese wouldn't hesitate to stab her in the back. She also managed to secure at the negotiating table the presence of a mediator, a Capuchin priest who helped to bring the Portuguese closer to an agreement in spring, 1656. In return for allowing Christian missionaries into Matamba, Governor Sousa Chichorio finally released Kambu from her full captivity in Luanda, instead handing her over to Capuchin missionaries at Fort Ambaka. This was a great demonstration for Njinga of her power. She was going head to head with the Europeans, and she was winning. But this wasn't just about achieving diplomatic victories. Kambu's release was vital for N'Jinga's succession plans. She was now in her mid-70s, and her own mortality can rarely have been far from her mind. Thanks to her delightful brother, she had no children to whom she could pass the throne. And while Kambu wasn't a whole lot younger than her, she was considered her best bet. Her Christian credentials were unimpeachable, and she had great contacts with the colonial administration following her years of captivity. The process of Christianization in the kingdom was then amplified through a miracle relating to a crucifix. While on campaign, one of Njinga's generals desecrated a church, chucking a large crucifix on the fire. That night, the general was troubled by a dream in which the said crucifix ordered him to, quote, Take me to your queen, or I will see that you do not leave this place. Now, it doesn't do well to disobey a threatening, talking crucifix, and so the general did as he was told, and presented it to Njinga, who exclaimed to her whole court, God searches for me and comes in person to find me. She took the crucifix and gave it pride of place at her altar. Whether this story is true or not is immaterial. The point is that it was spread far and wide by Njinga as demonstration of both her Christian faith and that of the power of the Christian God to her people. It would also serve the purpose of discouraging the illegal pillaging of Christian churches, which was an added bonus. This clever piece of propaganda played well both to her domestic and foreign audiences and continued her rehabilitation from her rather wild in Bengala days back to being a respectable Christian queen. This won her the full admiration of her missionary allies, who continued to write to the Portuguese of their faith and trust in Njinga, which led to one final peace conference in September 1656, where the Portuguese presented their terms. It was a highly paternalistic document that emphasised the King of Portugal's generosity in giving Njinga's rulership over Ndongo, only asking for some annual tribute in return. These terms were unacceptable to njinga as they implied that the lands were Portugal's to give in the first place. She said, quote, In return then to paying the tribute that you claim from me, there is no reason to do so, because, having been born to rule my kingdom, I should not obey or recognise any other sovereign, and go from absolute lady to become a servant and slave, this would be a great embarrassment. Now that I have embraced the faith of Christ to live quietly and finish my life in peace, I do that which I had not wished ever to do in the past while I was in Bangala and at the height of my many troubles and persecutions. If the Portuguese want a gift from me every year, I would give it to them voluntarily, as long as they equally give me one so that we would both deal with each other courteously if you take nothing else from what I've said in these episodes. That little speech is N'Jinga in a nutshell. It is positively Elizabethan in its expressions of sovereignty and glory. Remember, right at the start, when I told you the story of her sitting on a slave rather than on the floor so that she could deal with the governor on equal terms? That was decades ago, but she is fighting the same fight and still... Holding her ground. She would not be dealt with as a supplicant, as a vassal, as a lesser. She was a queen anointed by God. The King of Portugal was her equal in rank, not her overlord. Any notion that he had of power or control over her was wrong. She had the heart and the stomach of a king, and a king of N'Dongo, too. However, when the final deal did come through, it wasn't a true meeting of equals. Gone was most of the language of overlordship, but the treaty did require Njinga to, quote, obey the King of Portugal and come with soldiers when he demanded. She also agreed to allow the Portuguese free trading rights to Ndongo's markets, reopening the flow of slaves that she had been constraining for so many years. That said, it was still a far more equal relationship than the hapless King Harry had endured during his time on the throne. It removed the paying of tribute and guaranteed independence from Portuguese interference in internal affairs for the first time since they had first arrived in the country. This deal was signed by the governor in Luanda and was then sent to Njinga in Matamba for her approval, along with Kambu. Finally, reuniting the sisters after so many years apart. As the party travelled across Ndongo, hundreds and then thousands of people joined them, creating a kind of party procession vibe as the nation welcomed the possibility of peace after so many years of conflict. When they finally arrived at Njinga's court on the 12th of October, she rushed to her sister, throwing herself onto the ground, rubbing herself in soil, as was the Mabundu custom before embracing Kambu and showering her in kisses. She then signalled her acceptance of the treaty with a simple clap of her hands, which was the Mabundu custom, before verbally ratifying it to the Europeans and placing her mark on the document. This was marked with wild celebrations, as well it should. Both Ndongo and Matamba erupted into an orgy of drinking and revelry for many days and nights. While in some Portuguese huff that no one was turning up to the services of thanksgiving in the churches, no one was listening to them. For the first time in nearly a century, peace reigned in Ndongo. The years of civil war, of constant raiding, of economic blockade, and foreign armies marching across the country, they were over. Jinga had come to the throne at the age of 39, and now finally, at the grand old age of 73... She was the undisputed queen of her homeland, not to mention also Matamba, which she had but even as she drank the night away and celebrated with her people, and most likely her concubines too, she would have been acutely aware that the job was only partially done. She had secured her throne. Now she had to rule her nation. Of Njinga's four decades as Queen of Undongo, only seven would be spent in this period of peace at the end of her reign. But she still managed to pack quite a bit in. This had been the moment that she had been working and striving towards over three decades, a time where she could actually rule her kingdom. As a woman in her 70s, in the 17th century, she knew that she only had so much time left before her mortal coil was shuffled, this meant that she had to prioritize, focus on the three things that were really important to her. These were the succession, Christianization, and securing the joint monarchy with Mutamba. After the realm's defense, the most important thing for any monk to do is secure the succession. As we discussed in the first half, Njinga didn't have any children after being forcibly sterilised by her brother during his time as king. Her chosen successor was her sister, Kambu, who, in turn, had a son, who could continue the line after she had gone. So, there was a clear pathway. And, unlike many monarchs in history, Njinga didn't have many qualms about passing the throne off to another woman. She would have preferred to have given it to her son, but, since that wasn't possible this was the next best thing. However, Kambu faced opposition, and this is where things get really fun, the biggest threat came from none other than her husband. His name was Njinga Amona, which literally means child of Njinga, which wasn't literally true, but honoured the closeness of the relationship between the queen and her brother-in-law. Born a slave... As a child, he had been captured by the Umbangala and raised in their war camp. Njinga had taken an interest in the boy and saw him rise up the military ranks as a man, eventually becoming one of her most trusted generals. If you remember the story I told you earlier about the miracle of the crucifix, he was that general. She had honoured him with a marriage to her sister as a reward. And this was a Christian monogamous marriage with all that that entailed. It seems likely that her reasoning for this was that she wanted a man for Kanbu who did not have royal blood and would therefore not be a threat to the succession. Dongu had not accepted King Hari, who had been the son of a slave, and surely Mona knew that they would not accept him either. Sadly, that wasn't the way his mind worked, and as soon as he married the heir to the throne, he began plotting to supplant her. He protested that Mbundu and Imbangala traditionally chose their leaders through a vote. It didn't pass automatically down the royal bloodline. This wasn't Portugal. He also used as his wedge issue that of Christianisation. Which brings me neatly onto Njinga's second priority. God, I'm so good at segues. Her promise to Christianise her dual kingdom of Ndongo Matamba had been at the heart of her peace deal with Portugal and she saw it as vital to their long-term security. Her own personal spiritual journey had been rather long and circuitous, and we cannot be sure for certain what her private thoughts were on her faith. But outwardly, she professed her total conversion to Christianity, and a determination to see the peoples of both her kingdoms follow her. She had around her a number of Capuchin monks, the most important of which was Father Gator who was by her side throughout the peace negotiations and remained with her for much of the rest of her reign despite this her brand of christianity was far from orthodox instead it was a blend of traditional roman catholicism with conventional Mabundu and imbangala rites thrown in this was both for practical reasons in other words to avoid too much pushback from her people and also for prestige Much of her own regal imagery came from the traditional idea of the monarch as a semi-divine figure, and she didn't want to lose that entirely. So she kept up old practices, such as the royal word, a ceremony where N'Jinga would dispense advice to her people at an appointed hour, which, it was believed, bestowed great luck on the supplicant. She also appeared with relics and artefacts from Ndongo's past, and would personally dispense weapons to her soldiers, as it was believed that bows, axes and swords given in this way made the bearer invincible. But these were really just window dressing, and N'Jinga was deadly serious about bringing Roman Catholicism to her people, a process that began with a programme of mass baptisms. She started with her officials and military officers, and this progressed into vast baptismal parades, where soldiers and ordinary people would gather in formation outside the appointed church for marching in to undergo the rite. In this way, thousands of people were baptised as Christians in ceremonies followed by feasting and celebration. The next step was the institution of Christian marriage. Traditional Mabundu and a Megala marriage was a crowded affair, but now there was room for only one. For Njinga, This meant jettisoning her 40 or so husbands and official concubines, and selecting just one to be her Christian husband. The man she selected was a young boy who had taken the Western name of Spastiao, who was described as, quote, graceful, robust, and of the most beautiful features. He was several decades younger than Njinga, and like Mona, he was the son of a slave with no royal blood. Why did she choose him? Well, I think it was because he was young and hot and wouldn't be a threat to her while she was alive, nor to her sister once she was dead. Her sister's marriage followed this and their joint example saw thousands of marriages as her nobles reluctantly gave up their harems and joined in Christian union as single husband and wife. Though so one imagines that those concubines didn't stray too far from sight, if you catch my drift. Okay, let's move on to her final priority, the dual monarchy security, because this was also related to her policy of Christianisation. Remember, N'Jinga was the queen of Ndongo by right of birth and election, but was queen of Matamba through conquest. She was determined not only sure that her bum stayed well and truly firmly on both of those thrones, but they both also passed down to her chosen successor. Now, this was easier said than done, as her old friends, the Portuguese, were sniffing around, looking for any excuse to come along and annex the kingdom for themselves. The peace treaty had ceded land to the Portuguese in Ndongo, but Njinga was unwilling to give up one metre more of land to the colonists. Her strategy to do this was to gain greater international recognition and prestige, most importantly from the Vatican. She wrote constantly to the King of Portugal and the Pope in Rome about the strength of her faith, her compliance with the peace treaty's terms, and the progress of Christianisation. She knew that any hint that she was in breach of these would be seized upon as an act of war, whereas full recognition of their Christian status by the Pope would make it far harder for Portugal to justify reopening hostilities. She also continued to cultivate her relationship with the Capuchin missionaries flooding into the kingdom whom she continued to use as an additional back channel to the Vatican all with the goal of gaining full recognition of her as a Christian monarch and her realm as a Christian nation it would take years for all of this work to come to fruition largely due to obstinacy from the portuguese who prevented engins official from traveling to europe and worked hard behind the scenes to undermine her prestige. However, in March 1661, she received a letter from Pope Alexander VII, a man, by the way, with the most magnificent lochdale style hair, which welcomed her into the Christian faith and announced his prayers for her kingdom's virtue and prosperity. This was a huge diplomatic coup for N'Jinga, So far as I know, no African ruler had ever received such recognition from Rome, and really showed the huge progress she had made in transforming her image from vicious savage to virtuous Christian ruler. Around this time, she also managed to find time to construct a new capital, Santa Maria di Matamba. Located on the banks of the River Hamba, this new city was based around a new church, which would be built in the European style. This would take three years to complete, and at pride of place at the high altar was the miraculous crucifix that her brother-in-law had presented to her all those years before. So she had done all she could to affect the Christianisation of her people. But this wasn't something that could happen overnight. And while the kingdom was home to scores of missionaries, they were far outnumbered by the thousands of traditional priests That was still at the centre of everyday life for most of her people. She made several laws requiring all religious veneration to take place in Christian churches and repressing the traditional faith. But even so, the number of baptisms by the end of her life still numbered in the thousands, a small fraction of the overall population. So she began to go further, signing off on the wholesale destruction of traditional altars, relics, and other sacred spaces. But all this resulted in was a lot of very angry people who were if anything far less disposed to the christian faith which endangered the legacy she had worked so hard to put into place and she knew more than anyone else that her time was running out and jinga had always been a woman of extremely robust health fighting on the battlefield into her 60s and never really suffering serious illness but you can't escape the reaper forever and by 1663 it was clear that the end was nigh and the vultures were circling. Her brother-in-law Mona's faction was stirring up trouble, capitalising on anger caused by N'Jinga's repression of traditional religion and her decline in health prevented her from taking serious action. By the autumn she was entirely bedridden and gathered her advisers around her to ensure that the transfer of power to her sister was done in seamless a way as possible, she was given the last rites, and with her last words asked the priest to intercede on behalf of her soul. She died at eleven o'clock on the seventeenth of December, sixteen sixty three, at the ripe old age of eighty. Her sister and her advisers didn't immediately announce the queen's death. Instead, putting into action their plan to ensure her elevation to the throne would be viewed as a fait accompli. Before anyone knew that Njinga was dead, Kambu was crowned as the new queen. Njinga's funeral took place on the same day as her death was announced, and the commemorations lasted for many weeks. There were plays put on that celebrated scenes from her eventful life, church masses remembering her service to Christ. Even the Portuguese held a service of remembrance in Luanda. But... This unity, unfortunately, didn't last long. The long-simmering tensions between the Christians and traditionalists soon erupted into conflict as the queen and her husband fought for the crown and the future direction of the kingdom of Ndongo Matamba. Just three years later, Mona overthrew and killed his wife and would rule for the next decade and a half before himself being overthrown by the son of one of Kambu's supporters. Despite all of this turbulence, the kingdom of Ndongo Matamba would remain free of colonial occupation, maintaining its fiercely won independence for nearly 200 years before finally being forcibly incorporated into the Portuguese colony of Angola. That success owes a great deal to the woman who had freed the nation initially, and Ndjinga's memory would never be forgotten in her homeland. In Europe, well, there her legacy would be slightly different. One of the first European retrospectives of her life was written by Antonio Cavazzi, a missionary who had lived in her court, but had never been truly convinced by her conversion. He wrote the following in a poem about her, shortly after her death. Just to note, when he uses the word Ethiopia, he's referring to Africa as a whole. Quote, Here lies the one who lived to die. Here lies the one who, by dying, lives in this dark tomb she hid herself. Because of Agrippina, Rome rebelled. Because of Helen, Greece rebelled. But Ethiopia did not rebel for Njinga. Instead, Njinga overturned, destroyed and ruined Ethiopia. A most cunning thief has stolen from the treasury of heaven. It was this image of a barbarous, duplicitous, heathen queen that filtered through to Europe helped by Cavazzi and his colleague Antonio de Gaeta, who wrote a biography of N'Jinga. His work was more complimentary than Cavazzi's, but really amps up her barbarity in early years, and gives all credit for her conversion to himself and his fellow Capuchins. It was a story where a, quote, pagan idolater was turned into a, quote, devout Christian. This stripped N'Jinga of all her agency, making out to be a thoughtless, bloodthirsty barbarian brought to the light by the glory of God and his white men on earth. This image played right into the hands of missionaries, who wanted to highlight what could be done when they did their work in the field in Africa and Asia. Her story was then taken up by libertine writers in the run-up to the French Revolution. They were not concerned with the church, indeed they spurned it, and were instead interested in the exotic orient, an over and bloody image of other they imagined outside the world that they actually knew. The most famous of these was the Marquis de Sade's philosophy in the boudoir, in which he used N'Jinga to illustrate the apparent tendency of women to be driven to evil deeds by their sexuality. He described N'Jinga as, quote, "'Cruelest of women killed her lovers as soon as they had their way with her,' Often she had warriors contend while she looked on and was the victor's prize. To flatter her ferocious spirit, she had every pregnant woman under the age of 30 ground in a mortar. Another writer in England around the same time described her as, quote, one of the most horrible monsters that ever appeared in the face of the earth in female shape. And, moving forward into the 19th century, the German philosopher Hegel described her as ruling a man-sacrificing, female-dominated hellscape. Back in colonial Angola, the Portuguese were keen to continue the narrative championed by Cavazzi, that they were the civilising force preventing Africa from descending into the barbarism represented by the evil Queen Nginga. A classic method of colonial rule was divide and conquer. set the native peoples against each other, so as to more easily control them. Of course, for the people of Angola themselves, N'Jinga represented something entirely different. It's hard to track how the story evolved, as it was passed down the oral tradition and wasn't written down, but it's clear that she was held up as a nationalistic hero. Someone who protected her people, won wars against colonial oppressors, and even expanded the nation's borders. By the 1960s, as Angolans began to rise up against the ruling Portuguese, Njinga was used as a unifying figure, around whom they could all gather. Angola is a melting pot of languages, races and cultures, but Njinga could unite them all under one banner. The main revolutionary army, the Socialist People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola, or MPLA, in particular held her up as a hero and when Angola won its independence, the MPLA, which has been in government ever since, has continued to do so. Previously excluded by the colonial authorities, N'Jinga's name has been reinserted back into the Angolan history books, and there has been a proliferation of poems, novels and histories about her in the years since. She has been identified as the mother of Angola, and in 2013, there was a great festival to celebrate the 350th anniversary of her death. This included the premiering of a feature film, Njinga, Queen of Angola, which I will admit I have not seen, but depicts an Njinga in the African tradition. Neither bloodthirsty nor oversexualized, but a fearless guerrilla fighter, willing to give it all for her people. She's also popular in Brazil, where of course hundreds of thousands of Angolans were shipped to as slaves over the centuries, where she too is seen as a resistance hero. Of course, there's this is a somewhat sanitised view of her. As we have seen in this miniseries, she was far from a woman of peace, and the pursuit of what she saw as her birthright did lead to the deaths of countless numbers of her own people. She could also be ferocious and ruthless and would not hesitate to kill in order to get her own way. But that was the time and the place she was in, and she deserves to be far more widely remembered as a true African heroine, a woman who took on European colonial oppression and won. And that is all for this week. Until next time, stay safe out there, and I'll see you all very soon.